welcome back to our series of audio briefings exploring key aspects of company law. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Suzanne Carney of Counsel in the Corporate M&A Department in Arthur Cox. I'm Ashlyn Carey, Senior Professional Support Lawyer in the Corporation M&A Department in Arthur Cox. And I'm Tom Courtney, Partner in Arthur Cox. In our last episode, we discussed substantial property transactions under Section 238 of the Companies Act 2014. Today, as promised, we are focusing on Section 239 and transactions with directors and connected persons. Before we begin, it might be helpful to remind listeners that while the same transaction may sometimes involve analysis of both Section 238 as a substantial property transaction and Section 239 as a transaction with a director or other connected person, the two provisions are not otherwise linked in any way. However, the concept of a connected person is of central importance to both provisions, and I would encourage you to listen to our previous episode on connected persons and substantial property transactions for a more in-depth discussion on persons connected with directors. Today, we are only going to briefly recap on who can be a person connected with the director, and as in our last podcast, we are going to refer to such persons as relevant persons for shorthand. Relevant persons include the directors of a company and, if relevant, the directors of that company's holding company, including legally appointed directors, de facto directors and shadow directors of either. So while the CRO registered directors of a company should be readily identifiable, other relevant people may not. Relevant persons also include natural persons who are connected with the director as set out in Section 220 of the Companies Act 2014 which includes the spouse, civil partner, parent, brother, sister or child of a director. Finally, a body corporate will be a relevant person where it is a body corporate controlled by a director of the relevant company or of its holding company or a body corporate controlled by a body corporate that is itself controlled by a director of the relevant company or of its holding company. And finally, it should be remembered that there is a rebuttable presumption that the sole member of a single member company is a person connected with the director of that company. Moving on now to Section 239. The general rule under Section 239 is that loans, quasi-loans, credit transactions, the provision of guarantees or other security from a company to a director or connected person is prohibited, other than in five exempt circumstances, which we will discuss later. Tom, critically, Section 239 is only concerned with transactions by the company. There is nothing to prevent a director, for example, making a loan to the company. Suzanne, yes, unlike the substantial property transactions provisions in Section 238, Section 239 is not a a two-way valve and is only concerned with prohibited transactions or arrangements made or entered into by a company. A key aspect of note is that Section 239 is directed at an Irish company, as that's defined by Section 21 of the Companies Act 2014. So a company incorporated in England, which does business in Ireland, can make a loan to one of its directors without Section 239 applying. And again, this prohibition is not new. In fact, its previous incarnation under Section 31 of the 1990 Act was viewed as more draconian and represented quite a challenge to practitioners when applied in practice. Absolutely. Section 239 reenacts the primary prohibitions under Section 31 of the Companies Act 1990, which some of our, let us say, more mature listeners will recall. 
Indeed, one of my first legal articles published was as a trainee when I wrote on Section 31 as the latest hazard to guarantees, and that was all the way back in 1991. Then the provision was extremely draconian and operated to block certain transactions, notwithstanding a company's solvency, as the exceptions were considerably more narrow than now. While the 2001 Company Law Enforcement Act began injecting some common sense into the original prohibition, it was only the advent of the 2014 Act and the availability of the summary approval procedure to validate at transactions that the provision can be considered to be proportionate. However, the prohibition under Section 239 remains formidable, and in order to validate a prohibited transaction or arrangement using the SAP, one must first, of course, recognise the application of Section 239 to the transaction. That's a very good point, Tom. And with this in mind, we might look in a little more detail on what is prohibited under Section 239. Ashling, Section 239 prohibits companies from directly engaging in prohibited transactions and arrangements, but it also extends to indirect participation. Yes, Suzanne. Subsections 2 and 3 of Section 239 operate to prohibit companies from indirectly taking part in such prohibited transactions and arrangements. Section 2392 prohibits a company from taking the assignment or the assumption of any rights, obligations or liabilities under a transaction, which, if it had been entered into by the company, would have contravened Section 2391. The result is that a company is also prohibited from, for example, taking an assignment of a loan made by another person to a director of that company, because the company would itself be prohibited from making such a loan under Section 2391. And Section 2393 prohibits a company from taking part in an arrangement where another person enters into a transaction which, if it had been entered into by the company, would have contravened subsection 1 or 2, and that other person, in pursuance of the arrangement, has obtained or is to obtain any benefit from the company or its holding company or a subsidiary of the company or its holding company. Sections 239, 2 and 3 essentially operate as anti-avoidance provisions to avoid circumvention of the primary provision. Having said that, I have rarely seen these circumstances arise in practice, and perhaps that fact is their ultimate justification. So far, we've been discussing Section 239 in the context of loans to directors. We should probably note at this point that Section 239 prohibits a company from doing one of five transactions or arrangements in favour of a director or relevant person, the first of which is making a loan. In this regard, while cash loans might initially come to mind, it's important to note that a loan comprised of real or personal property or a chosen action will also be subject to this prohibition. A company cannot make a quasi-loan in favour of a director or other relevant person. The prohibition on quasi-loans aims to capture transactions which are loans in all but name, including where there is no formal agreement, whether by written or oral, or by which the company can be said to have agreed to repay the debts of any of the relevant people. An implicit understanding that a company will discharge the debts of a director or other relevant person may therefore constitute a quasi-loan. A company entering into a credit transaction as a creditor for a director or relevant person is also prohibited by Section 239. The definition of credit transaction is very far-reaching and it includes the supply of goods under a higher purchase or conditional sale agreement. One of the more common instances, however, of credit transactions are leases of land, including bona fide commercial or residential leases of land. 
Accordingly, a company may not grant a lease to any relevant person. The definition is wide enough to include a conveyance where the full consideration is not paid to a company on the disposal of its interest. A long lease of land reserving a nominal rent will, however, not be a credit transaction. Section 2194 provides that a lease of land which reserves a nominal annual rent of no more than €100 Euro is not a credit transaction where the company grants the lease in return for a premium or capital payment which represents the open market uh, value of the land being disposed of. So, for example, your standard uh, apartment uh, lease would not be a credit transaction. This reflects the conveyancing reality of long leases, since usually the sole reason for choosing to alienate property by way of a long lease as opposed to a conveyance is to further the proper management of apartment complex or retail development by facilitating the enforcement of positive covenant, for example, the payment of service charge. The purpose of Section 239, on the other hand, is to prevent companies alienating their property in favour of relevant persons in return for periodic payments. Section 2391 also prohibits a company from entering into a guarantee in connection with a loan, quasi-loan or credit transaction made by any other person for a director or other relevant person. In this regard, guarantees of loans and quasi-loans may be more easily recognised. However, it is worth noting that the prohibition on guarantees also captures indemnities. Finally, a company is prohibited from providing security in connection with loans, quasi-loans or credit transactions made by third parties for a director or other relevant person. This prohibition on companies entering into guarantees in respect of credit transactions made by third parties for directors and other relevant persons has proven to be particularly problematic. Unless one of the exceptions applies, a company cannot guarantee the performance of, say, a 35-year lease granted by a third party to a company controlled by a director. So to recap briefly, Section 239 does not prevent companies from making loans, quasi-loans or other transactions mentioned generally. It simply prohibits them where they may are made to or for the directors of the company or other relevant people. And even where such a transaction is made in favour of a director or other relevant person, as we've mentioned, the prohibition under Section 239 is subject to exceptions. And there are five aspects to the Section 239 prohibition. Loans, quasi-loans, credit transactions, guarantees in respect of loans, quasi-loans and credit transactions, and the provision of security in respect of loans, quasi-loans and credit transactions. And there are also five exceptions. Under the prior Companies Acts, not all five exceptions applied to all aspects of corresponding prohibition. This exacerbated the complexities of the provision. Now, however, the law has been changed so that all five exceptions can be invoked in relation to all five aspects of the Section 239 prohibition. Under the prior Companies Acts, there were also some variations regarding the types of relevant person who could avail of the five exceptions, but now those variations have been removed too, and so all five exceptions will apply to all relevant persons, with the exception, of course, of the group exception, which by definition can only apply to transactions or arrangements entered into by companies in favour of bodies corporate. Under the prior Companies Acts, one of the most availed of exceptions in the context of loans to directors was the predecessor to Section 240 of the Act. Ashling, can you summarise Section 240 for our listeners? 
Sure. Section 240 provides that if the value of an arrangement is below a certain amount, it is not subject to the Section 239 prohibition. This is the first exemption available, the de minimis or less than 10% exception. So a company is not prohibited from entering into an arrangement where the value of the arrangement is less than 10% of the company's relevant assets. Two figures are fundamental in determining whether or not this exception applies. Firstly, the value of the arrangement, and secondly, the amount of the company's relevant assets. On the value of the arrangement, the Act provides some assistance in determining what this means. So in the case of a loan, its value is the principle of the loan. In the case of a quasi-loan, it is the amount or maximum amount which the person to whom the quasi-loan is made is liable to reimburse the creditor. In the case of a credit transaction, its value is stated to be the price which it is reasonable to expect could be obtained for the goods, lands or services to which the transaction arrangement relates if they had been supplied at the time the transaction was entered into in the ordinary course of business on the same terms apart from price as they have been supplied or are to be supplied under the transaction arrangement in question. In the case of a guarantee or security, the value is the amount guaranteed or secured. It's important to be aware that where the value of a transaction or arrangement is just not capable of being expressed as a specific sum of money, it'll be deemed to exceed €65,000. A company's relevant assets is defined in Section 238.2 as being the value of its net assets determined by reference to the entity financial statements prepared under Section 290 and laid in accordance with Section 341 in respect of the last preceding financial year in which such entity financial statements were so laid. However, where no entity financial statements have been prepared and laid before that time, the amount of relevant assets is then the company's called-up share capital. Before we leave this exemption, and at the risk of repetition, it should be noted that, unlike its predecessor, the de minimis exemption can now be used to validate all five aspects of the 239 prohibition. The next exemption is validation of the otherwise restricted transaction via the summary approval procedure which Tom mentioned earlier. Again, everything that has been prohibited by Section 239, including the indirect or anti-avoidance provisions we discussed earlier, can be validated under the SAP. We've discussed the Summary Approval Procedure, or SAP, in a previous episode for those listeners who may not be familiar with the procedure. In the context of validating a transaction or arrangement otherwise prohibited by Section 239, this procedure requires a number of steps. Firstly, the passing of a special resolution by the shareholder or shareholders of the company authorising the carrying out of the otherwise restricted activity. The special resolution is an essential feature of this exemption as it provides for the protection of the company's shareholders in that they must pass a resolution where at least 75% of those who vote vote in favour of, for example, the giving of a guarantee or provision of security in favour of a relevant person. The special resolution must be passed not more than 12 months before the transaction or arrangement is entered into. This is to provide shareholder protection against, for example, a change in circumstances. Secondly, the SAP will involve the directors of the company making a declaration in writing as to the solvency of the company. Again, we've discussed the declaration in more detail in our previous episode on the SAP, but in the context of validating a transaction under Section 239, the directors must state the benefit that will accrue to the company, either directly or indirectly, 
from entering into the transaction or arrangement. The effect is to remind the directors that a company should not enter into transactions or arrangements where it does not itself derive benefit. For the directors of a company to enter into a gratuitous transaction or arrangement is likely to be in breach of their director's duties. Tom, I know you have some thoughts on this. Yes, Suzanne, and we've discussed this a few times. I don't think it is sufficient to state that no benefit will accrue to the company and the transaction or arrangement cannot be wholly gratuitous. It's implicit that some benefit must accrue, since otherwise the legislature would have said the benefit, if any, or even whether any benefit will accrue. Where the directors believe that entering into a transaction or arrangement is for their company's benefit, it is, of course, really prudent to ensure their determination of that fact is minuted and thereby evidenced. The requirement for there to be benefit to the company strikes a good balance between the interests of directors, their companies, and, of course, companies' creditors. Finally, a copy of the declaration must be delivered to the Registrar of Companies not later than 21 days after the date on which the carrying on of the restricted activity concerned is commenced. Failure to do this will invalidate the carrying out of the activity, meaning that the exception will cease to apply, an offence will be committed and the transaction or arrangement becomes voidable. The third exemption available is the group exemption. Where the company is a member of a group of companies, it is, subject to some parameters, permitted to enter into a transaction or arrangement in favour of another member of its group, including any body corporate which is its holding company, subsidiary or a subsidiary of its holding company. For the group exemption to apply, it is key that the donor company and the beneficiary body corporate are part of a group of companies within the meaning of Section 8 of the Companies Act, which defines holding company, and Section 7 of the Act, which defines subsidiary company. And as Ashling mentions, it is expressly provided that the beneficiary of the transaction or arrangement can be a body corporate. That is, the company's holding company, subsidiary or sister subsidiary, and that term is expressly defined under the Companies Act to include foreign companies. The fourth exemption exempts the payment of directors' expenses. In reality, this is not an exemption that really features uh, very often in commercial transactions. Under Section 244, transactions are exempted where the company provides any of its directors with funds to meet expenditure properly incurred by them for the purpose of performing their duties. Examples might include transactions which form part of everyday commercial, especially banking life, such as where a company guarantees a director's credit card or their petrol account. However, Section 2442 provides that such loans must be repaid to the company within six months from the date on which any liability was incurred. The final exemption is available in respect of business transactions entered into in the ordinary course of business. This is provided that the transaction is made or entered into on terms which are no more favourable and for a value no greater than those which the company would both reasonably and ordinarily offer to others. The reference to a company entering into a transaction in the ordinary course of its business therefore implies a certain usualness for the company to enter into such a transaction. Hopefully that overview of the transactions and arrangements prohibited by Section 239 has been useful to our listeners. Turning now briefly to the consequences of breaching Section 239, for example, where a transaction or arrangement between a company and a relevant person falls within the parameters of the prohibition under Section 239 and none of the exemptions are available, the company will be in breach of Section 239. 
Tom, what are the consequences for the company for such breach? Well, let's first look at civil consequences. And there are three civil consequences for contravening 239. The first is that subject to certain savers, any contravening transaction or arrangement will be voidable at the instance of the company. This has always been the real policeman of Section 239 for guarantees and the provision of security, as banks will always ensure any guarantee given complies with the procedures. The second is that the directors or other relevant people are liable to indemnify the company for any loss it suffers and to account to the company for any gain they make. Um, This is the standard remedy for a breach of director's duties and applies towards the breach of Section 239. The third civil consequence is that in certain circumstances, certain people can be made personally liable if the company is subsequently wound up insolvent. Unlike a breach of Section 238, substantial property transactions, it's very important to remember that the contravention of Section 239 is a serious criminal offence. If a company enters into a transaction or arrangement that contravenes Section 239, any officer of the company who is in default shall be guilty of a Category 2 offence. Notably, where a company enters into a transaction or arrangement in breach of Section 239, the separate legal entity that is the company will not commit an offence. Rather, it's its officers who are in default who will be guilty of the offence. As a Category 2 offence, the suspected breach of Section 239 is reportable by a company's statutory auditors. And it's also important to remember that because it carries a penalty of of up to five years imprisonment, persons suspected of its commission can and have been arrested without warrant and detained for questioning by the Gardaí. Thanks, Tom, and thanks for that overview of the consequences of breach. That concludes our episode today, and we hope that our listeners have found this overview of Section 239, the exemptions available and the consequences for breach helpful. If you have any questions on anything we discussed today, please feel free to contact Tom, Ashling, or myself, and we'll be back with a new episode on a different topic next month. In the meantime, thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>